This interview is brought to you by First Rand. Well, a myriad of problems in South Africa, including rolling blackouts, water shortages, a shaky health system, and trains that stop running, to name but a few, we all know what they are, um, can be attributed to corruption in the country. Corruption Watch has since January 2012 been a fearless organization who embarked on an ambitious project to mobilize the public to report their experiences with corruption and hold leaders to account. Well, leading the charge since the beginning was David Lewis the Executive Director of Corruption Watch in South Africa. Well, David is leaving Corruption Watch at the end of the month of December, and he's joining us now to look back at his time at the helm of Corruption Watch. Hi, David. Hi, hi, Linda. Well, um, can we go back to the beginning? This is probably a bit of an obvious question, but when you started out, what did you set out to achieve? Well, we didn't really know what we were going to achieve. I mean, all that we knew was that we had a, I mean, the country had a serious corruption problem. And, uh, you know, I think, interestingly, Corruption Watch was really initiated by Zima Vavi, who was then head of Kasatu. And people have probably forgotten, but at the time, it was one of the few public figures who were really outspoken about corruption. And uh, so he was starting to get lots of reports from the public and from his own members. And he brought together some of his old trade union comrades to try and help them deal with this. So we took it up. You know, some thought we were going to be an investigative body. Others thought we were going to be a research body. Some thought we were going to be a mobilization body. And it's really that latter that we've... uh, that we've zeroed in on is really encouraging the public to engage, to be active in the fight against corruption. And as you've mentioned, one of the principal ways in which we encourage that was to encourage people to report experiences or knowledge of corruption to us. I've looked at some of the barometers of of Transparency International, where you are part of Transparency International. It looks like South Africa's kind of stuck on its ranking of what is it, a score of 44, because 100 is a clean government, so that's not great. And we've not shifted from, is it position 69, where Bulgaria, Hungary, Jamaica, Romania, and Tunisia is. So the public could be more aware, but we seem to be quite stuck in this rut. Yeah, those transparency, the corruption perception index figures, which you just quoted, or rankings, which you just quoted, they do move very slowly for all countries. But, you know, the fact is that in South Africa, and we, and I emphasize, we have a very serious corruption problem and nothing should uh, detract from that uh, reality in, in our perception. But, you know, one thing that South Africa, and partly through organizations like ourselves, through journalists, we've had an unusual exposure of corruption. And so, you, you, you know, I, I don't doubt that after the Zondo Commission, mm-hmm. people perceived that there was more corruption in South Africa than they had when they started. But really what we might have done was exposed more corruption than many other countries have through the commissions of inquiry, through the Gupta leaks, through journalists, through organizations like uh, like Corruption Watch. So there might be, you know, in a, in a country, in many of those other countries that you named, there is very little exposure of corruption. I mean, those, uh, you know, many of those countries are not 
particularly democratic. They're not particularly tolerant of journalists. They're not particularly tolerant of, of NGOs. And so, you know, the people know what they know, but they're not helped in understanding the problem and knowing the problem. And that's what we've set out to do. Also, one, one doesn't know what the counterfactual is. I mean, we know that we're stuck here, but I mean, what would have happened if we and Amabungani and uh, some of the other organizations hadn't been here? Mm. We might have gone down the ladder, you know. So it's very difficult to measure impact, very, very difficult, you know. And that's why, you know, as I say, we set out to promote an informed, active conversation about, public conversation about corruption. And I think we've achieved that, you know, not on our own, but that has been achieved. And um, and I think that one of the consequences of that is that we have a, a public, a population, that unlike a country like Russia or even India, are still, our population is still intolerant of corruption. We haven't yeah. accepted this is something that's a tax that we just have to accept whether we like it or not. There's still anger and outrage about corruption, and that's how it must remain, because as soon as you lose that public outrage, you've really lost the battle. I sometimes wonder, you know, people who bribe a traffic cop, do you think South Africans are still guilty of that, that they think a little bit of bribery is okay, but those big guys, that's really bad? Yeah, you, you know, a lot of South Africans do think that way. I mean, one of the one of the unusual things about our organization is that because we ask the public to report experiences of corruption, we have developed knowledge and uh, an understanding of how damaging petty corruption, so-called petty corruption, yeah. and the traffic cop bribery thing would fall into that category how damaging petty corruption is, you know, and in the townships, it happens in almost every single interaction with public officials. So if it's the housing official or the licensing official or the, or the traffic cop when people are going in taxis to work in the morning or, uh, you know, the person fixing the electricity or whatever the case may be, uh, schools, you know, these were amongst our biggest volume of reports was corruption in the in the management of school budgets now mm-hmm. you know each on their own they don't amount to a large amount of money yeah collectively they do amount a lot to a large amount of money but even more damaging than that they are the places where people make up their minds about the quality of their government the quality of their politicians they stop voting they take the law into their own hands and so we've always encouraged people and the government not to underestimate the impact of petty corruption. So, yes, that traffic cop thing feels like an innocent act. Well, what is the, the term? They want no, a victimless yeah, see, yeah. act. Who really cares? You part with a hundred rand, you don't get a thousand rand fine. The traffic cop's happy, you happy, everybody goes home happy. I mean, the people who aren't happy are the people who get killed by drunk drivers, you know, and those two things are are linked. I mean, also, you know, people think this is a, an exchange between one bent traffic cop and one bent driver. In fact, the driver has to pay the person who sent him on this nice lucrative route and 
the router has to pay the he's his senior officer. So it's a it's a system of corruption. You talked about Zondo Commission that really, you know, we really saw there what corruption was and, you know, the right people have not been brought to book. The one thing that people worry about is that there hasn't been a lot of prosecutions for corruption. It seems that that the wheels are really turning very slowly. How do you feel about that? I'm concerned, you know, you know, everybody does. I think I'm a little bit more understanding than the average member of the public, but that doesn't make me any less concerned. Those institutions, the NPA, the Hawks, the police themselves, were unbelievably damaged during uh, the Zuma administration. I think that none of us appreciated how badly damaged the, particularly the law enforcement agencies, the state-owned enterprises, and local government were during the Zuma period. And so, you know, and criminal prosecutions, you know, under any circumstances have to be done very carefully and take a long time. So I have some understanding of why it's so slow, but they've really got to speed it up. I mean, you know, and and it's not only them that are to blame. Government have to provide more resources to the Mm. NPA, although I don't think that's the main obstacle. They have to find more skilled resources. And I'm afraid at the moment the only place where that comes from quickly is from the private bar and the private sector. And these should be people who are paid, you know, whatever it is they get paid, however obscene that sometimes feels, to conduct these investigations and and prosecutions. But it is a worry because it, it does make the public very, well, there's nothing being done here, you know. And that's not entirely true. I mean, I think, you know, the Shamila Batois and General Labias are working, you know, 18 hours a day, but, you know, immediately underneath them, they've got people who are working an equal number of hours to undermine them. <laughs> um, well, um, whistleblowers, those are the people that came to you, you know, the people like you know Cynthia Stimple from SAA, the heroes of this. Do you think there's enough protection for them? There are enough whistleblowers? Should people come forward more? You, you know, there's no combating corruption without whistleblowers. It's mm. an unusual offense in that sense. I mean, there's not... Often, I mean, sometimes there is, and they're often whistleblowers. They're not often a dead body or a, you know, a missing television set or something like that. It's a, it's a, an exchange conducted between two consenting parties. And the only way the beans are going to be spilt is if one of those parties feel they're about to be caught. And the only reason they would feel that is if somebody is told on them, you know, so whistleblowers are absolutely essential. I mean, look, you know, our our whistleblower protection legislation is pretty standard, um, okay. you know. So, but but you can never protect whistleblowers enough. There's no way that you can be a whistleblower, or you should be a whistleblower, without being aware of the courage of that you have to have in order to do that, and the risks that you're taking. And I think most whistleblowers know that. And, you know, when you have assassinations of whistleblowers, the principal objective of that often is not to silence the whistleblower who's shot or killed or damaged. Prevent others coming forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in 
in big companies when whistleblowers are fired or ignored or whatever, it's the same purpose and the same consequence. So, so you can never protect them enough. I mean, I think the, the way to protect whistleblowers, I mean, this is often counterintuitive, is not to hide, but I mean, this has got to be done very carefully, but rather to make them celebrated members of society, you know, if the president to go and visit them and, you know, award them some national order for doing what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. And this makes them reasonably untouchable, you know. But as I say, there's no way a whistleblower can ever feel completely protected, which is a great pity, but but you have to appeal to somebody's civic duty. And, you know, people like you mentioned Cynthia Stimple. Mm. I mean, Cynthia has that in spades. I mean, yeah, her does. other, you know, colleagues of hers or, or, or sort of comrades of hers who've blown the whistle have had a terrible, terrible time of it. People who blew the whistle in ESCOM really have been appallingly treated. Mm. And then, you know, the complexity with whistleblowers is that, is that they're whistleblowers and whistleblowers. I mean, there's Cynthia Stimple and there's Angela Greasy, and they're not the same type of whistleblowers either. Some are doing so because they are saving their own skin. Uh, you know, Cynthia blew the whistle from the minute she saw what was going on. I, you know, I was on the board of South African Airways at the time, and she was really courageous and paid in the end, you know, paid a price for it. She did pay a price. Um, before we ask you who you're handing the baton over to, is there one big moment in the past, in your time, that you can single out, you think, okay, that worked out really well, you know, we're doing a great job? There, there were big moments. I mean, you know, successful litigation, reports that were well-received, um, I remember even the president at some function saying when um, I was positive about an initiative by government, how pleased he was to be on the same side of corruption watch for change. Those were, but, but the really, you know, one of our very big projects and somewhat under the radar, not for reasons of our own doing, is a very big project on corruption in the mining sector. And we are talking here about Corruption, particularly in the management of mining royalties, where billions of rands have been stolen. I mean, it's the most, it's the most unknown story of corruption in the country. And the people who it's stolen from are really the most disadvantaged, most impoverished communities in the country, as anybody who's gone around Sun City and will know. And it's really dangerous to be a whistleblower there. And I remember once in the office, this elderly lady came in. She had come in from the Northwest with a folder of title deeds going back 70, 80, 90 years. And she, this woman had been challenging the mining companies for decades. And she, in fact, could not sleep in the same house for more than a couple of nights at a time because she so rightly feared for her life. Now, I mean, those were great moments, you know, when when you had somebody who was prepared to to do that for her community. And we, we're getting somewhere with it, you know. I think that uh, that problem will ultimately be dealt with, but it would not have been dealt with if it had not been for for her. So, you know, those are the the really big moments. 
Okay. You know, and the, and the and the opposite of that is when you know somebody comes in to blow the whistle, but you look at this person and you know you're a complete crook yourself. You're just uh, blowing the whistle on somebody who's probably quite innocent, but who's oh. after you. You know. So, what's next for you, and who are you passing the baton to? Well, the person who will take over is somebody named Karam Singh, who's currently head of our legal and investigation department. And, um, you know, Karam has really done a, a great job in our legal investigation department, and I'm sure he'll do a good job um, in, uh, in uh, heading the organization. I mean, unlike me or Converse and me, Karam is inclined to think first and shoot afterwards. I'm a little bit the opposite, but, um, but, uh, but he, he'll be great. And, um, I don't really know what I'm going to do next. Um, I, I have had a few health problems. Um, so I'll, I need to confront those. No, they're, they're okay. I'll have to confront those. And I've got a huge pile of books that I want to read next to my bed. So I, I think I'll spend, um, Good few months doing that, and then I'll 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 think about what it is. Maybe a book about corruption and corruption watch, or something like that. I think so. Well, thank you yeah. so much, David Lewis, the executive director of Corruption Watch. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thanks. So this interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com.